October. Coming soon to the Mojo Radio Show. I got my Mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Damn, I'm looking forward to October 2017. Welcome, folks. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. And that promo is a little, little slither of what you're likely to hear if you stick with us until Rocktober 2017 already, already lined up. Joe DeSena, who is well known for starting Spartan Racing. We've got Kel Newport, who wrote the fabulous bestseller Deep Work, one of my favourite ever books. Greg McGowan, who wrote Essentialism. We just got this Chris Fussell, who's a Navy SEAL, who works with General McChrystal. Uh, on leadership and leadership lessons from the Navy SEAL. It is just a cracking lineup, as well as a few well-known worldwide rock stars who are going to make their first appearance on the Mojo Radio Show. Strap in your seatbelts, kids. It's going to be a hell of a ride. That's coming up. Before we get there, Michael Gervais, who is the psychologist who works with Seattle Seahawks, who is just gold-plated gold. And also, Robbo's been hard at work on our Mojo in the Bedroom show, which has been four years in the making, <laughs> long-form show. It, uh, it's going to stretch our little minds somewhat. Yeah. But, um, I think we're it's going to run that... for about four years as well. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to launch that right before Rocktober because <clears throat> we're going to start Rocktober the last week of September. Mm. You know why? Because you can. That's what podcasts are about. You can do whatever the hell you want. That's right. I've got to tell Welcome you. Welcome to the show. Oh, go on. I got to tell you a funny story. I got uh, hello to my friends at Smile FM in Cape Town in South Africa. Um, I was sending them some stuff, some work that I'd done for them last week, and I'd been working on the Mojo Show, and I accidentally attached a, a rough mix of something I'd done for Rocktober to the to the email. So they got all their work plus this Rocktober promo, and I got this email back going, "Man, we we, we seriously had forgotten about Rocktober. We're thinking about doing it too late this year. Oh, We're thinking about no. doing it next year." How cool is that? True story. Uh, so there you go. We're inspiring so radio stations all over the world to right. bring back Rocktober. Well, we have had some lovely feedback from listeners from around the world who are on this journey with us. If you're brand new to the show, we just find, if you're brand new to the show, Rob and I just find people that inspire us. We think they've got their mojo working in some aspect of their world in and out of work. Uh, we talk to them, we extract their tips, their tools, their opinions, their stuff that we can steal, plagiarize, put into our own worlds to get our mojo working. And this week, we're going to really be stretching our brains. But uh, nice to have you on board. Thank you for hitting the download button. It means a lot to us. We don't have any advertising or sponsors, have never had for four years. Thank you, our friends at Doseki and, mm. and uh, Tim Tams. Still waiting. Still yeah, waiting, still Tim Tams. Just Monte saying. Carlos are looking good, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Oh, thank God. So as I said at the head of the show, which is what they say in radio. <laughs> Can you say head on radio? We, uh, we get a lot of mail, which is what keeps the studio fueled here, apart from beers and Tim Tams, uh, because uh, letters from you guys uh, makes our day. Just to let us know that people are out there, you're getting something from it. And it's funny, just during the week, as an example, I got a, a, a beautiful email from a guy called Michael who was sitting on a plane on his way back from the US. He'd just been through the podcast with Jason Selk. He said, thank you, Robbo and GB, for crafting and sharing such a compelling episode. He's going to incorporate lessons into his life from today, getting after it. Wow. Jason Selk is killing it on, this, on the charts. Oh, such a good show. Though. Yeah. 
He's up there already. He's up in the top 10, I think, already. So if you're brand new to the show, uh, Jason Selk was the mental coach sports psychologist for the St. Louis Cardinals who took them to a World Series. And he is just, honestly, that is gold, back-to-back gold. However, it's notes like that from Michael that really keep us going. And I got a letter from Christina, who is the boss head, head thinker at Ideation at Work, a fabulous company, and, and Christina really does beautiful work. You'll find them online. Christina wrote to me about some other stuff and said, by the way, uh, have you met or do you know Kyla Colbin from Singularity University? And my response was negative. So Christina said, would you like me to introduce you to perhaps get her on the show? And Kyla is the, it's just a really interesting lady. She's the curator of TEDx in Christchurch and is also the ambassador for Singularity University. And there's a big summit coming up in Australia in 2018. And Singularity University, which you'll hear from Kyla, no doubt, during the interview, is all about emerging technologies and what we can do about it. This is going to be a fascinating conversation, but I'm just going to say one thing before we start the show. Don't think that these new technologies, these life-changing, world-changing technologies are that far away, number one. And number two, don't think it's left to the brainiac to be able to do it. This is stuff that we need to be across and investigating, pondering, thinking, and journaling about right now because this stuff ain't that far away. So with great pleasure, Kyla Colbin, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to catch up. Uh, Just to put everybody in the picture, when people say to you, hey, what do you do? How do you like to reply? That is such a good question. If I had a good answer, my mother would be happy. She still has no idea what I do. What I generally (laughs) tell people these days is that I help people better understand the nature of technological progression and how they can adapt and thrive in a rapidly changing world. Well, that means we're on the right track because that's exactly what we want to talk about today. <laughs> and that's the call we made, right? <laughs> yeah, so we must get yeah, the right that's, really- that's good. So we've got the right, Kyla. Um, Singularity University, you are in this region, New Zealand and Australia, you're the ambassador for Singularity University. Can you just run that for us? What is that university? Who's it for and how does it work? So Singularity University is an organization based in Silicon Valley housed at the NASA Ames Research Center, and it was co-founded by the tech legends Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis. Um, Those guys made some observations in 2009 about where technology was going and our collective inability to understand this, and they got together and formed SU to help leaders better understand these technologies and how they would be affected and how they can adapt. I think it's probably also just fair to say at this point, Robbo, that uh, both Ray and Peter are big fans of the show. Huge. Uh, Massive. Shout out. Shout out to the boys. I mean, I kind of felt like it went without saying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, let's be honest. Who doesn't listen to the Mojo Radio Uh, show, right? Exactly. Is that funny? Absolutely. Hi, Barack Obama. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, 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 You went to you went to NASA to study at. (laughs) I did. Yeah, it's a Singularity University. And whilst you were studying there and doing that course at that time, you walked away with three key insights, which has kind of shaped, I guess, your view on technology and what you can share with us. Can you just take us through those three insights? Yeah, definitely. So worth noting, I did the executive program at Singularity University, or SU as we call it. Um, It's a six-day program. And I went in feeling like it was going to be fun. 
but actually it completely transformed my life. It completely upended the way that I understand the world and the nature of technological progress. So those three insights that you're referring to, the first one is that the price performance of computing has been doubling on a regular basis for almost 120 years. So a lot of people have heard of Moore's Law, which came from Gordon Moore, who's one of the co-founders of Intel. Moore's Law talks about a doubling in the number of transistors on an integrated circuit. But what Ray Kurzweil talks about is a doubling in price performance, which means how many million instructions per second can you buy for $1,000? And that doubling curve is just tremendous, way before Moore's Law and likely to consider to continue much after. The second insight is that that doubling in price performance doesn't just apply to computing. It actually applies to any technology once it becomes information-enabled, so powered by ones and zeros. And all sorts of technologies are now powered by information and are following similar doubling curves, things like artificial intelligence, robotics, nanotechnology, biotechnology. And then the third insight is that all of those technologies that are following doubling curves are now starting to converge. So now we have to consider what happens when an exponential progression in something like artificial intelligence converges with an exponential progression in something like robotics. And of course, what happens is that everything accelerates even faster and we have to work even harder to be prepared and to adapt. So say, say big data meets AI. And I'm thinking specifically yeah. of institutions and the service industry, which is based on big data. I'm thinking law, finance, financial planning, uh, anything where there's big data. And now it's meeting AI. What does that mean? Where's that going to go? So that's a great question. And, and there are a few kind of examples of where this might go. One of the first things is that um, I'll give you an, a good example of AI meeting big data. So gene sequencing, this first gene that got sequenced cost 2.7 billion US dollars to sequence. The price performance of gene sequencing came down for a long time consistent with Moore's law. And then in 2007 started to plummet much faster than Moore's law. And today you can get your gene sequenced for around a thousand bucks US, right? So what, what happens when you can get your gene sequence for a thousand bucks is it becomes a retail product and lots of people can get it done as opposed to just one very well, uh, well-resourced research institution, right? So now hundreds of thousands of people get their gene sequence. So you have this massive, massive data set. Combine that with an exponential progression in machine learning and AI, like you're talking about. And last year, there was a study from the University of Pennsylvania and Mass General Hospital where the researchers looked at over 450,000 gene sequences, people who had gotten their gene sequencing done by 23andMe. They had voluntarily provided their medical history. They'd opted in to have their medical information used for research purposes. And around a quarter of them self-identified with a major depressive disorder. And because of that information and, and the ability to use AI and machine learning to extract information from that massive data set, the researchers were able to identify 15 genetic markers associated with depression. So that's one super positive example. Uh, in, on, the, on the legal front, um, we're looking at AI being able to basically do away with hundreds of thousands of hours of grunt work of reviewing thousands of papers of legal documents and historical cases, et cetera. So all that grunt work can kind of be done away with, and the AI can simply surface the relevant material. In the financial services sector, 
JP Morgan last year, they um, had 160 people whose full-time job it was to help people recover lost passwords. They replaced that function with a chatbot. I don't know what they did with 160 people. If they were smart, I think they would have reallocated them to something a little more fulfilling where they're making better use of their skill set. Um, but, uh, but they can now, you know, that kind of repetitive uh, uh, activity can now be done through AI. Do you know what's interesting, Carla? Innovation as a term 10 years ago wasn't kind of hip and cool and people weren't using it. And now business is into innovation. And what's, what I find fascinating about this AI meeting big data is typically law firms, medical practices, financial advisors, people in that institutional service type line would go, well, we're not a biscuit. We're not a car. We're not a computer. We don't need to be this sexy innovation stuff. We just uh, we just get stuff done. Yet Ross, as a bot, just won its first court case in America. Can you just run that for us? Yeah. So uh, it, you know, I think every business needs to be paying attention to this stuff without question. This affects every single one of us. So um, a study just recently came out from McKinsey that firms with proactive AI strategies have profit margins 3 to 15% above their peers across all industries. So this is not a question of, oh, well, our firm doesn't really need it. That's just for the super technologically advanced ones, right? Um, you know, uh, uh, Ross, who's driven by IBM's Watson, uh, is doing tremendous things in legal cases, but it's not just Watson. There was a chatbot that was created by a 19-year-old kid uh, called Do Not Pay that successfully contested 160,000 parking tickets in New York and London. So this stuff is happening in every industry, uh, all over the place, and it's something that every single person needs to uh, there's one for us, Robbo. Yeah, tell you what. Do not pay. Just put that as a bookmark. We'll be sending a few <laughs> tickets across. I'll tell you what, that kid is amazing because he started, so he's 19, he started with do not pay, but then he adapted that chatbot and now that chatbot is being used to help refugees claim asylum in Europe. So is that awesome, right? awesome stuff. It's absolutely true. Do you know what occurs to me with this? And I want to dig some more into this sort of stuff with you, Carla, because I, I actually do find it fascinating. And one of the things I said at the top of the show is that people listening to this, listening to you, whether it be on YouTube or uh, on interviews you do, but I suspect many people would hear you speak about this and go, oh, that's just for the brainiacs, just after that 19-year-old genius who can do that. But my take on this is that we should all be across it. We should all be considering it, learning, understanding more about it, because it's incumbent upon all of us to be prepared and thinking about it and not just leaving it to the bright people. Do you, do you see that? Do you feel the same thing? Oh, look, you've completely, completely nailed it. That is absolutely the case. And for a whole range of reasons. So one of them, for example, is the impact on the employment market of all of these technologies uh, and AI in particular. So in 2013, a study came out from Frey and Osborne who projected that 47 to 81% uh, of jobs as we currently understand them would be under threat from technology within 20 years. In 2015, the Committee for the Economic Development of Australia came out with a similar study saying that in Australia, we're looking at 40% of jobs under threat from technology in 10 to 15 mm. years. So that's by 2025 to 2030. So whether or not we're a brainiac, it absolutely affects us. It affects what we choose to study. It affects uh, how we choose to approach our careers. It affects our kids. Uh, it affects our government. So we all need to be part of that conversation, even if we're not actually the ones who are writing the code. 
I heard a quote, just something I'm interested in running by you because of the, the nature of how you think. I heard a quote the other day and this guy said, wisdom has been replaced by knowledge. Then knowledge was replaced by information and content. And it seems to me on these topics of AI, AR, VR, holograms, that we, we flick through stuff. We consume the content, the information, but then we're not giving it enough due consideration to turn that content into knowledge for ourselves, then potentially trying some things, doing some beta tests, doing some drawings, experimenting in order to have that knowledge turn into wisdom. And when I hear you talk about machine learning and AI and this sort of stuff, I'm completely fascinated by it with how it's going to impact any industry you look at. Do you find that's the case with many leaders who are consuming this stuff but actually not taking and giving it due consideration to make it into knowledge and potentially be at the forefront and turn that knowledge into wisdom? Well, you know, for me, one of the um, privileges of the role that I have is that those are exactly the kinds of conversations that I get to engage in. And those are the kind of conversations that we're trying to drive is how does this affect all of us? How, what kind of societal choices do we want to make? Um, what do we want to do about um, things like firm inequality, which is where the richest firms uh, pay the biggest salaries, attract the smartest people, and continue to pull away from their uh, their, their not-as-advanced counterparts? Uh, what do we want to do about uh, companies that come in from overseas and that drive kind of a gig economy thing where most of the wealth is getting concentrated uh, in, in overseas hands, is this, is this a choice that we want to make? So there are lots and lots of considerations that come in here, and those are the conversations that I get to have. And this is you know why we're doing the Singularity U Australia Summit in February is because that conversation can't just be, uh, you know, government leaders and chief executives behind closed doors. That has to be a whole bunch of people coming together with all different perspectives to kind of collectively co-create the future that we want. So that's really what we're trying to do. And it strikes me, Carla, that there are leaders who think this stuff is way off in the future. Yet when you really drill down to stuff like self-driving cars or self-navigating cars, AI, AI, uh, the lawyer, the bot lawyer in America, Ross, when you drill down, this stuff's not that far away. It? It's, it seems to be only a matter of a few years before this stuff is well and truly commercialized and upon us. Is that is that what you're seeing? Yeah. So this is the nature of exponential progression is that it looks like nothing, 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 and then everything. So if you think about the way an exponential curve looks, um, if you've ever tried to do that trick where you fold a piece of paper in half eight times, the first fold is easy. The second fold is easy. The third fold is easy. It's easy, easy, easy until you get to the eighth fold and then it's impossible. Right. And so exponential progress looks exactly like that. Think about if you take 30 linear steps, you go 30 meters. If you take 30 doubling steps, you'll go 26 times around the planet. But the really tricky thing there is that you're not halfway until the 29th step. So it's really hard to measure progress as you go. And so what happens is it's not that this stuff comes overnight. It's that it's been building for a long time. And then when it finally hits that inflection point, that, you know, seventh or eighth fold of the paper, it seems like it's come out of nowhere because people are not thinking in exponential terms. But you're absolutely right. So that uh, story came out just recently from the NRMA talking about uh, a million autonomous cars in Australia by 2025. That's like tomorrow. 
<laughs> that's that's what eight, uh, seven years from now, eight years from now. Um, that's that's super soon. There was a, a paper that came out earlier this year from a think tank in the U.S. called Rethink X. They're projecting that 95% of all miles traveled will be by autonomous electric vehicle by 2030. That's just 13 years away. So this is we're looking at the kind of wholesale shift, that wholesale disruption, similar to what we saw in the horse and buggy industry in New York yeah. in the early 1900s. Where one year it's like you've got millions of horses, and five years later you've got none. I could possibly throw one in here. My my best mate, he's uh, old. <laughs> this is in complete seriousness. My best mate's old man sits on the board of a million companies around the globe, and it would be probably ten or fifteen years ago he was invited to become the chairman of the board for a company in the UK that was developing voice control. Um. And at the time, you know, I listened to, to Roy, my best mate's dad, talk about this stuff that they were working on and just went, yeah, right, never happened. Uh, and so that would have probably been 96 or 97. And look at it now. It's just everywhere. Yeah. And when it happens, it, all the incumbents say it came out of nowhere. There's no way we yeah. could have known. Yeah. But yeah. if you're paying attention and you understand these exponential curves and because our brains don't work that way, we have to apply disciplined and structured thinking in order to really grasp. Uh, where they're likely to go and in what kind of time frame. Um, but when we see these curves, we'll absolutely not be taken by surprise, right? If you see this coming, then you would you never would have said, oh, there's no way that voice recognition is going to be a thing. You'd be like, of course it's going to be a thing. It looks like nothing now, and it'll like, look like nothing tomorrow, and nothing and nothing and nothing, and then everything. Do you know, Carla, this probably, this last two minutes is probably the most profound piece of radio we've ever done the radio show because you talking about, exponential progression curve sounds a lot like our radio show. A lot of nothing, <laughs> then nothing, then nothing, then more nothing, then everything. So I'm looking forward. We've got a few more nothings to go. And then, Robbo, something, everything's going to drop. And well, I, I think this is exciting. Yeah. Now I'm feeling good about, I'm feeling good about the studio. I think our everything will be Rocktober. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, um. I, I've got to say, I've been looking forward to talking to you because I heard Peter, who was one of the co-founders of Singularity University, interviewed, oh, gee, a couple of years ago. And I, honestly, I, was, I became such a fan within minutes when I heard about what he'd done with space, his thinking, human longevity. I mean, the guy's just on a different planet. And I think the opportunity for you to work with someone like that and Ray, I just think is just a gift. Honestly, I, 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 I know you must be so grateful. What's, what's, can we call it SU? Are we friends enough to call it SU? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. So, cool. We're, we're in. We're in, Robert. We're in. Um, we're, in. <laughs> we're in. Nothing, nothing, nothing. You can call so, me KC uh, Dog if you want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's going to stick. Don't worry about that. Uh, Hashtag. You've done it now. Go see dog. Yeah, I can uh, see the show notes now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what What have you personally learned from SU, KC? So what have you What have you personally taken away from your time there? Look, I, I you know, I when I came away, I mentioned earlier when I came away from SU, I felt I felt you know what it was like. It was like, have you ever seen on Facebook those videos where someone's doing a painting and they're doing this super fast painting, but it's massive and you have no idea what they're painting and they paint for about two minutes and then they do the final stroke and they turn it upside down and it's Nelson Mandela. And you're yeah. like, how did that, how is that Nelson? <laughs> yeah. This is really what SU did for me. Like 
it was like all I had all these disparate data points, right? Like I had already heard about self-driving cars. I'd already heard about AI and robotics and 3D printing and all this stuff. And it was like splotches on the canvas. And when I went to SU, it was like they put the final stroke in and turned it upside down. And I was like, oh my gosh, it all fits together in such a more profound way than I had realized. And really because of that, it just completely changed the trajectory of what I do in life. Because when I realized that, I also had this penny drop moment of going, this affects all of us and we're not prepared. We're totally not prepared. We need to be having much more robust conversations. And I come at this not feeling that I have any kind of answers, but feeling like I can drive a more informed conversation about the kind of questions we should be asking, right? And the kind of things that should be important to us and the kind of things we should be paying attention to uh, so that we don't end up having the future imposed on us by default, but we end up choosing the future that we want. See, I, I also think that something that you have spoken about that people don't put into their consideration box, Kyla, is that when Casey you think dog. about, Casey Dog, uh, when you think about diabetes monitors that hook up to a smartphone or a heart monitor, so you've got a parent or a friend has got a dicky heart and that person is wearing an implant which hooks up to technology somewhere that if it should miss a beat, they can detect it early. Uh, you're wearing Fitbits, which is all hooked up to a phone. You've got a smart fridge, which is ordering the milk, God forbid, that because you run short of milk and it's hooked up to a phone and hooked up to the cloud. The, the cybersecurity behind all that is the thing that I'm fascinated by. I've heard you talk about it. Where Where is that now? And when we talk about considerations of self-driving cars or self-navigating cars, that's one part of it. The other part of it is what we're prepared to share because there are some pretty, I mean, super sharp kids out there that can take that info and do stuff with it. Is that something we really need to be aware of? <laughs> Absolutely. Where we're at with it now is nowhere near, nowhere near where we need to be. Um, so one of the people that we're bringing to Sydney in February is Mark Goodman, who is the founder of the Future Crimes Institute uh, and the author of the best-selling book, Future Crime. Uh, and this is his entire focus, is the fact that we've moved from a world where you had sort of co-location of criminal, victim, and law enforcement. Um, and so you could have you know, jurisdictional boundaries that sort of made sense. Uh, you had a, a, a reasonable, um, a reasonable uh, correlation between how big you were as a bad actor and the scale of the damage you could do. So if you're just like a person in a basement, you can maybe, you know, steal somebody's purse and you'd have to be a a government in order to wage war. Um, And we've shifted entirely away from that to where to a world where people can uh, can engage in bad actions from anywhere on the world. So entirely remotely. And so jurisdictional boundaries become a thing of the past uh, and where the scale of damage that somebody can inflict is completely disproportionate to how big their operation is, right? You can have a very small operation of people uh, who could inflict quite a lot of damage uh, if they really set their minds to it. And so that's something, again, that we need to be way more attentive to than we currently are. And Mark works with governments and, and law enforcement agencies all around the world to help them better understand this to get more prepared. I reckon we should uh, we should get Goodsy on the on the show, mate. What do you reckon? Sounds like a, a must. I reckon. Goodsy, Goodsy. He's amazing. <laughs> he's 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 definitely the kind of person that that uh, 
makes you want to look over your shoulder. <laughs> you yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. More than normal. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I heard an interview with Kevin Kelly, who's the editor-in-chief of Wired magazine uh, on a podcast, and he was, in response to a question, the interviewer said, how do we stay across AR, VR, machine learning? How do we stay across all that? And Kevin Kelly said, read 10 books a year. And I'm staggered that people would be lucky to read two books a year, let alone 10 books a year. But that was his view to try and stay across all this stuff and at least be doing something to put yourself in a position where you understand it. What would be your advice, Carla, when, you, when you're talking to somebody and saying, and it could be completely new to them. I mean, they've read a blog on cars. They've read a blog on some of the technologies emerging and smart fridges and Nest and all this sort of stuff. But if they really wanted to sort of start to advance their learning in this area and start to become more prepared, what would be your advice? Well, it's going to sound selfish. My advice is that you should come to the Singularity U Australia Summit that we're hosting in February in (laughs) Sydney. Um, But I say that not because uh, because it's my event and, and because I'm trying to plug it, but more because uh, the whole purpose of this event is exactly that, is to help people get a robust enough immersion in this content that they feel that they have their heads around it and also that they get to a point where they can't not do something with it. So um, one of the things that happened when I first came back from SU, uh, you know, I've already talked about the transformative experience I had. I came back from SU and I started giving talks. I do quite a lot of public speaking and the talks were great and I got a really great response from them, but I'm really aware that a single talk doesn't drive behavior change any more, quite frankly, than a single book drives behavior change, right? You have to kind of be immersed in this stuff. And so for me, when I did the executive program, it was really kind of day two where I was like, I can't unlearn this and I can't go back. And so our whole aim with the summit is to create a similar kind of robust immersion so that people can't unlearn it and can't go back. So that would be my number one advice is come along to summit. When I will when say I'm you... also really happy to give your listeners um, a discount code uh, if they want to come along. So yeah, I'm not just saying this to try to to try to sell more tickets. I'll I'll, I'll hook you up with a code. Can I use that too? Of course, <laughs> absolutely. Any friends of the show are friends of ours. Hey, Casey Dog, Casey Dog, come on, come on, Casey Dog. <laughs> Can I talk a little bit about Casey Dog and your uh, your own mo? Sure. Uh, something I heard you talk about, which I loved, is you said that you have a mentor in the past who suggested to you to start listening to your body when making decisions for yourself and or the business. And you've, you've learned to understand how your body can help you to interpret decisions better. Can you just talk about how you do that? Wow, you do good research. Um, yeah, <laughs> he's actually a stalker. Yeah. Uh, I'm super impressed. That's I, and I love that you raised that because it's such an important thing. So, so it is literally that. Like we've all had those moments where we have a sort of physical feeling of uncertainty or unease about a situation. And uh, what this woman taught me is that that physical feeling of uncertainty is a representation of something that is actually happening in the environment, right? So I need to pay attention to that. So when I have a physical feeling of uncertainty about something, that's a big red flag to me to stop, take a step back and go, what is actually causing this feeling of uncertainty? Is it that I feel powerless or overcommitted or 
disrespected or, you know, what's, what's actually going on there. So first, an investigation into what's really going on to drive that. Number two, how can I address this? Can I, 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 I have to, um, one of the first things I have to do is name it. So make sure that I'm acknowledging what's going on. So like, let's say you and I were talking and I was feeling uncomfortable. I'd have to be like, look, uh, we're, I'm not feeling good about this right now. And here's why I think I'm not feeling good about this. And, and I'm going to open up the conversation to see what your thoughts are on that. And then number three, to be able to, um, to acknowledge it and, uh, and respect it and go, look, if I really don't feel good about something, I have to be willing to walk away from it. Um, but all of that is driven by that physical sensation that we've all had where you go, something's not quite right here. You know, somebody calls and says, can I come stay? And you're like, yes, but you don't feel quite sure. Or somebody offers you a job and you're kind of like, oh, I don't, it, I, it, it seems like a dream job, but I don't, my body's kind of like, I feel awkward about it. Um, and really just listening to those signals and making sure that they get acknowledged and integrated into the overall decision-making process. So it sounds like you you are a person who is in tune with your instincts. Is that is that right, Carla? You, you, do you believe you step back from yourself and look at yourself? Are you someone who believes and acts upon your own instincts? Uh, I, I certainly try to be, and it's some, but it's something that takes work constantly. Right. So, uh, you know, I've still will end up in situations where I'm like, oh man, in hindsight, I can see clearly where, where things went awry and how I got into the situation and that I had the opportunity back then to have paid closer attention and to have taken action, uh, and that I didn't take it. So it's a, it's a continuous process. You know, for me, there's, I haven't reached any kind of level of enlightenment where I'm like, I don't have to think about this anymore. But, uh, but that's certainly, it's certainly something that I try to do on a regular basis. So you're moving in some pretty impressive circles with Ray and, and Peter. And, and, and certainly Peter, I don't know much about Ray, but I know having listened and read stuff about Peter is certainly on a different stratosphere to a lot of entrepreneurs or business people. And I'd be curious when you look at people like that, the learnings you've taken, you apply to your own personal world. You've said that we need to rethink the framework about our worth and we need to question our worth in the marketplace versus our worth as a human being. For yourself and the people you've observed at the highest level you work around, how do they navigate that? The worth, because typically a lot of people, I think, fall into the trap of looking at their worth in the marketplace and it's not until something goes pear-shaped they start to look at their worth as a human being. What's what's your view on that? Yeah, well, this is one of the biggest challenges that we face, right? And one of the things that we forget is that we invented society as it currently sits. We invented the idea of a 40-hour work week. We invented the idea of uh, high school and college and university uh, and postgraduate degrees. We invented uh, the idea of money. We invented the idea of success. We made up all of these things and we forget that we've made them up. And so we treat them like facts or like laws of physics, when in reality, these are human inventions. But because we treat them like facts, uh, we struggle when reality conflicts with those so-called facts, right? So one of the biggest challenges that we have going forward is that one of the things that we've made up is this idea that our self-identity and our self-worth is entirely wrapped around the work that we do, right? But we invented that work and we invented the 40-hour work week. So we need to be able to um, separate our sense of self-worth and our sense of self-identity from that work. Now, a lot of people who have been through uh, job loss or redundancies or being fired uh, will have had to go through a very painful process of who am I if I don't work? And for a lot of people, that 
process is extremely challenging and can create all sorts of issues with depression and mental health. And, you know, it's a really big thing. Now, imagine if that's happening at scale across society. What does that do to society? It becomes much more than an individual issue. It becomes a societal scale issue. And it's one that we don't get taught to navigate. Right. When we're in high school, when we're in college, they don't generally teach us how to navigate our understanding of who we are as people, our understanding of what is our intrinsic value outside of the job that we hold or the amount of money that we make. And so, you know, there there are some people who are willing to have this conversation. But again, this is a conversation that I think everybody needs to be having. Right. It, it involves such a massive cultural shift in the way that we think about each other, in what we choose to value and how we define success and worth, that if we don't have everybody participating in this conversation, it's not going to happen. So how does does KC Dog view success personally? You finish your day, finish your week, finish your year. How do you articulate your own personal success? I really look at it through contribution, right? Has what I have done uh, been useful for people? Has it made some kind of impact? Have people been in some way better off? And, uh, and it's not necessarily about helping because I think it's helping immediately to me implies a sort of hierarchical structure that is not where I want to be. Uh, it's really more about giving how we, how we give to each other. So my purpose in life, which is publicly written is to be an uplifting presence. This means that it's not about me helping others because maybe others don't need my help or whatever. It's that people feel that in some way the world has been somewhat better off because I've existed. So that's how I measure success. That's gold. An uplifting that's deep, presence. Isn't it? That is that's gold. That's gold. KC Dog has you. just dropped the gold. Just bang, light it out. <laughs> Pick it up if you want. If you don't want it, just walk on by. KC Dog slapping it down. <laughs> Huh? Oh, that's good. That's gold. Oh, I love that. Um, you, you've obviously seen the good, the bad and the ugly in business. You've had jobs and businesses which went not so great. You've seen great success with TEDx Christchurch and with Singularity University with your speaking. And you've said that your mum was probably the inspiration for you to learn about resilience and grit. Do you, is it your opinion that those sorts of attributes, the parents have a great uh, influence on their children in picking up those sorts of attributes? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's no question about it. Parents have a tremendous influence on their children but that's not to say that you can't learn those attributes if your parents didn't instill that in you. So I definitely don't want people listening to the show who, um, you know, who, who feel like they didn't get that sort of role modeling from their parents that they have no, uh, no hope. Everybody has a chance to learn resilience and to learn grit. And it's one of the things that we saw firsthand. So in Christchurch, where I live, our city was mostly destroyed by earthquakes uh, six years ago. And we saw a city learn how to deal with resilience and grit uh, and how to respond and rebuild and also to grieve and to process the emotions that came along with all of that. So, um, so these things are absolutely learnable by pretty much everyone. Um, I feel particularly lucky to have had the mother that I had. Uh, she founded the oldest natural foods cooking school in America in the kitchen of our 11th story apartment when I was four years old. Uh, and she talk about grit. She 
put everything she had into that business. It was total, total commitment. And she spent 10 years in the red before turning it profitable. So, um, you know, I look at that and I'm like, I wouldn't spend 10 years on something that that wasn't working out. Um, But now this year we're celebrating our 40th anniversary. So, um, yeah, she was a great lady. We're getting there, guys. We've had four years. (laughs) No, but it's it's kind of, that's exactly where I was going to go because even even with your mum, and you talk about grit and resilience. We've had quite it's been a thread through our show for the last four years of our history. And if you look at the exponential progression curve you talked about for 10 years of nothing, nothing, nothing to get something, get everything. It, you know, even in the most fundamental 10th or 11th floor of a building, doing it yourself, doing all the work. And hanging in there doing the work, it is that exponential curve, isn't it? That all of a sudden it works and people go, oh, it's an overnight success. Yeah, exactly. The, the infamous 10 or 20 year overnight success. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ask, ask any band about that and they'll tell you, any rock band about that and they'll tell you plenty of stories, I'm sure, right? Yeah, exactly. So just on kids, just for a second, there's a, a child about to finish year six this year and going to head into high school next year. Based on your learnings, what you're seeing, the university, the people you're coming into contact with, what's, what are the opportunities for the kids in the future? Where, where do you think a kid heading into high school or university should be looking what areas are going to provide the biggest opportunities into the future? And or somebody who's 45 years old thinking, you know what, I'm kind of done with this. I want to get on board this curve. Where should we be looking? What What are the frontiers that present the biggest opportunities in the workforce for the future? Awesome. So there, there are a few directions that I would look to uh, if we're looking at what somebody should be studying or what their kind of future direction should be. Um, one of my first answer always when people say, I'm going to uni, what should I study, is philosophy. <laughs> study philosophy, study human behavior, behavioral economics, psychology, how we think, who we are, what makes us who we are, that whole question of self-identity. We need lots of people who have a deeply grounded understanding of these uh, of these topics. So, um, so that's a little bit flip because philosophy might not be your thing, uh, but I think that is absolutely something that um, that it, there will be great demand for. And in fact, I know not one but two people who have held the title of in-house philosopher at Google. So, um, so there are roles for this. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a. I think it's going to be an explosive area because all of those. Um, those structures of self-identity are all going to be called into question. Um, so we're going to need more and more people who, uh, who know how to think in this way. But one of the other things that I always say to people is study something where if the career that, it, that your study is designed for disappears, you would still value what you learned. So if you think about something like the law, uh, let's say you go to law school, and then let's say that there is no more role for lawyers. <laughs> lawyers get completely replaced by AI. Would you still value the way that it's taught you to think, the way that it's taught you to structure an argument, the way that it's taught you to do research, the way that it's taught you to draw parallels and inferences? Uh, And if all of that is true, then by all means, study it, but don't study it only because you expect it's going to give you a good job at the end. And then the third thing I would say to people is that we need to shift our entire framework. And and you kind of alluded to this when you talked about the 45-year-old who's going, oh, I might be, I might be done with what I'm doing and looking to switch to something else. Our entire paradigm of 
our, dividing our life into thirds. So this comes from my good friend Gary Bowles, who I was just talking to this morning, and what he talks about is this idea that, you know, historically we divide our life into thirds, where the first third is education, the second third is our working life, and the third third is retirement. And what he's saying is actually you have to slice all those thirds up into lots of little slices and then shuffle them together. So instead of education and now we're done learning and now we're into real life, uh, what we're doing is learning, applying, unlearning, relearning, applying again, unlearning, relearning, applying again. So I think we're not, we've, we've left the age where you can study something and then do that as a career for the rest of your life. And we've entered an age where we need to be prepared to continually adapt, continually learn, continually upgrade, uh, continually shift and re-investigate uh, our assumptions uh, and the things that we think we know to be true. Damn, you're good. Damn, that's good. <clears throat> Gary, I'm, um, I'm changing my title from Mojo Radio Show <laughs> Producer. To Mojo Radio Show in-house philosopher. <laughs> You'd say that. I was going to say we should run it. We should run an ad. Mojo Radio Show six a position available in-house, in-house philosopher. philosopher. But you've already filled it. Yeah, it's done. Oh. <laughs> I'm full of it. Yeah. What well, else you got? That was what the else easiest, you got? easiest recruitment process ever. That's right. Absolutely. Just look internally. Isn't that what they say? <laughs> exactly. Promote from within. That's right. Casey, dog, I want to take you back to something you mentioned just a minute ago before I hand you to Robbo for the big question of the interview. Um, you mentioned Christchurch, and uh, Christchurch is particularly close to my heart. I remember seeing, I was doing a speaking job in Sydney, and the guy who spoke before me was from Christchurch, and he showed a, a slide deck of 20 photos of what Christchurch looked like six years ago, soon after the earthquake had gone through. And I walked up to him straight away and said, if there's anything ever that I could do in Christchurch to be of assistance, to help with the recovery or some way, let me know. Anyway, he's, about a month later, he said, come across and do a speaking job over here. I did that and then he drove me around. And as like a tour guide, he took me down, I think it was called the Red Zone, right in the middle of town. And he was an incredible, incredible, his name's Barry Knight, incredible ambassador for Christchurch, but I've got to say, looking at it, there's no way you get any sense of what went on just from television or newspapers or blogs until you're there. And I went back again probably a year ago to see what had happened in the recovery. And it's just, it's such a beautiful story. I mean, I I absolutely love Christchurch as a city, how they have picked themselves up, recovered the, the shipping container malls and the cardboard cathedrals and all these other innovations that have been brought to the fore, I think it's just, it's fabulous. And as the curator of TEDx Christchurch, through that period where you did a couple of TEDx EQs, what what do you personally take from that period? Like what when you reflect back as a person who is in the city, what you saw, what you felt, the emotions, what what do you take out of that period? Oh, wow. That's such a good question. Um, I mean, one of the first things that I'm so pleased that you've conveyed in asking it uh, is the emotion that was associated with that time, and that still is associated with that time for everyone in Christchurch, uh, whether no matter what their experience was, uh, whether their houses were damaged, whether they lost loved ones, it, you know, for the whole city, it, it it literally and figuratively shook us to the core um, and I think made 
everyone here really question what kind of a city we want, uh, what we value, all of the all of the important things that need questioning all the time, but often it takes a natural disaster or some uh, momentous event in order to prompt uh, to prompt a conversation. Um, I will say I was uh, and continue to be so proud of this city. Uh, about a year after the quake, uh, I had an opportunity to uh, move back to the U.S. My um, I, I got divorced uh, here in New Zealand, and my mother wasn't well. Um, I am chair of the board of the of the cooking school that we have in New York, and and uh, and so it could have used my attention. And so, if there were ever a moment in in being in New Zealand where it was the right time to move back, it, it would have been that. Uh, and I chose not to because, for me, Christchurch is absolutely one of the most interesting cities in the world right now. Um, this, the whole uh, regeneration of it, and all of the messy and thorny and complicated conversations that come along with that, like what kind of architecture do we want, and who should be in charge, and how much say do the developers get, and how much say do the people get, and what should be public and what should be private, and you know, do we want um, cars in the central city, and how do we prepare for the future, and uh, like all of those really thorny conversations. Um, those are what are happening right here in Christchurch. And I was like, I can't leave this place. It's way too exciting uh, and way too important for me to go anywhere else. So uh, so I stuck around and I just, I love it here so much. It's, um, it's, such a, it's such a battler city, but it's also a beautiful city that has all sorts of things happening, and not only in terms of um, art and architecture, but also in terms of the kind of technological startup scene. And there's just everything going on here. It's really, it's really a wonderful place. And I think a large part of that driven by the energy that came out of the earthquake. So yeah, thank you for asking that. It's a great question. I know I'm an Aussie, but New Zealand has to be one of the most beautiful countries on the earth aside from all of that, right? It's just gorgeous. I love New Zealand. It, it, it is. It's, it's just like the movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love the. I love. It's almost like a tale of two cities for me. I love the North Island, you know, the lush green farming land, and then you get to the South Island, and it's the complete opposite. It's the rocky, the rocky, you know, outdoor lifestyle, glaciers, Milford Sound, and all those sorts of places. It's just in, in, incredible the difference between two islands so close together. Even in parts of New Zealand, in in the space of an hour or two driving, you get to such dramatically different scenery yeah. there's a there's if you, when, when you next time you come back to New Zealand uh, I'll take you to the west coast there's a there's a um, track there a walking track called Truman track uh, which is just north of the pancake rocks I don't know if you know the pancake yeah. rocks over yeah. on the west coast but so this Truman track it's like a 10 minute walk and in that 10 minutes you go between three completely distinct ecosystems wow. and it's just phenomenal it's like the best value for effort <laughs> yeah. you'll do yeah. in all of new zealand and you end up on this private beach with a waterfall it's amazing sounds like an offer too good to refuse guys yep Carla, mm-hmm. yep. just before we let you go because i'm very conscious of your time but i want robbo to ask you the big question of the day uh something i heard i heard you you speak about this and i must say the way you articulated i'd never heard it mentioned before the landing page of a website what does that tell us about a company? Wow. What event was this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've, you've got the wrong Casey dog, Jazz. <laughs> <laughs> what does it tell us about a company? I mean, it, it tells us what that company values and who they're speaking to. I, I'm not sure what answer I gave at the event you saw. Um, when I So I, I used to do quite a lot of work before I got into this work of helping people navigate exponential tech, which to me kind of ratcheted up the level of importance of the conversation. Um, I used to do quite a lot of work helping people with social media marketing. 
Uh, and when one of the first um, things that we would always talk about is what actually is marketing? And to me, marketing is the process by which you recognize your customers and they recognize themselves as your customers. And so if I look at the landing page of a website, the first thing I'm going to say is, is this website talking to me? And that might be the language that it uses. It might be the imagery, the aesthetic, the font, like all of these kind of subtle clues that tell me, yep, you're in the right place. This is a place for you um, versus it is not a place for you. Is that, what did I say at the event you saw? <laughs> That's what you said. You were talking about, um, this is going back a ways, but you were talking about the Ministry yeah. of Awesome. Yeah. And I think this is before SU and all that sort of stuff, but you were uh, talking specifically about the Ministry of Awesome. And you said just that. I just, I just hadn't heard anybody articulate the fact because we talk about the front page and you know, having click-through buttons and this and that, but I'd never heard anybody really say that the front page actually reflects your values and it reflects what you believe Completely. in. And I just don't think people put that in because the majority of websites when you're out meeting people and meeting companies, their front page is shit. But then you go, well, <laughs> does that really represent your values, your purpose, your mission as, as a business, what you want people to think of you or I believe most people are just trying to sell shit and I just don't think it, uh, so I think you actually articulate it nicely. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it just, it depends on what our starting question is, right? And I think so often the starting question when someone's developing a website is what do we want to say, which is completely the wrong starting question. The starting question should be how do we want people to feel when they get here, right? And and how can we help them feel that way? And then if we start from there, we're going to get it right. Yes, that's, what we're looking, that's the goal we're looking for. Cha-ching. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Cut that bit, and then the other bit. You talked about values, and I think we've got it. I think we're right. We'll, we'll stitch that together. Stitch that together, Casey Dog. And we've got it. We've got ourselves a good answer. Chop chop. Thank God for I'll audio leave it engineers. To technological magic. <laughs> there you go. So you let CAI do that, right? <laughs> what was? What, so what's the what's the big question? I'm I'm thinking. Oh, right, it's coming. Okay. It's coming. Don't you worry, <laughs> Casey Dog. We've got you sufficiently warmed up. Uh, I'm going to throw you to the big man in the corner here uh, by the consult for the big question of the day. Well, the big question's coming at the end of the next 90 seconds. Here we go. Robbo's Nifty 90. All right, Casey Dog, here we go. 90 seconds, start the clock, here we go. What was the last book you read? Uh, I'm reading right now The Secret Chord, which is about King David. What's your favourite treat? (sighs) Potato chips. Why did you do that to me? (laughs) When or where do you do your best thinking? Oh... In bed, and then I need to write it down, and I often don't. Like when I'm half asleep, the brain just keeps going. Keith Richards used to write songs in bed, and he kept a tape recorder next to his bed to to put them down. That's what I need to do. If your house was burning down, besides family and pets and all the rest of it, what would be three things you'd save? Uh, I'd probably grab my computer, and that's about it. A computer and phone, and, and with that I can recreate anything. What's the last thing you learned about the future of AI that made you say, wow? I learned that... Um, <laughs> this should be the easiest question. Now I'm like the most on the spot. Um, I think the last thing I learned about AI that made me say, wow, was just yesterday, Carl Frey, the writer of the original report about joblessness has doubled down on that report, even though there's lots of questioning about it. So uh, yeah, that technological unemployment thing is not uh, over with yet. Wow. There you go. You got me saying it now. What's your favorite TV show? Game of no, House of Cards. The best thing about your job? The conversations I get to have, like this one. Hey, nice. <laughs> What's one thing you need to stop doing? Overcommitting. Uh, if you could get a plane ticket to anywhere in the world for free, where would you go and why? Antarctica, because it is the 
climate engine of the planet, and I think we need to understand it more. All right, here's the big question, the one you've been waiting for. You wake up in the morning, you hop out of bed, you come downstairs, you have your Wheaties for breakfast, but things just aren't firing. So you hop in the car, you're on the bus on your way to, to a meeting or to work or wherever you're off to that day. What's the song you go to on your iPad, your iPhone, your car stereo, wherever you may be, to get your mojo cranking for the day? Uh, so I got to answer this question. I have to tell you that the name Casey Dog actually exists because I used to be a boxer, and that was my fighting name. And my fighting song is "Killer Queen" by Queen. And what a oh, great what? song! What? <laughs> That's sick. That was your fighting you name, Casey Dog. Yep. yep. I love it. <laughs> my friends gave it to me because they wanted to come to the fights and be the dog pound and go woof woof woof. <laughs> oh, sounds like, the Cle- sounds like the Cleveland Browns. That's that's super cool. It does. And what a great song, too, to finish the interview off as well. Yeah, it's a good tune. She's a killer queen, gunfight, agility, dynamite with a laser beam, guaranteed to blow your mind. Carla, this has been not only a heck of a lot of fun, uh, but that little bit there is probably one of the greatest finishes we've ever had to a show. Talk about coming from left of centre, right? Wow. It probably is right up there with a positive psychologist who told us their favourite song was uh, Enter Sandman by Metallica yes. and they play it in the car full glass and dropping the kids off at school. And that, that, took, that took the oh oxygen out of the studio for a second. It but did. Uh, uh, I'm a boxer and here's the song I played when I went into the ring. Yeah, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I didn't see that coming just like your left hook. <laughs> oh, that is just gold. Man, I love this show. I do. I honestly love awesome. this show. Uh, <laughs> thank you for sharing. Where Two things. Where do people find out more about you and how do people get details of the summit in Sydney? Uh, so me, I'm on LinkedIn, very easy to find. Um, but more importantly, the summit in Sydney, the website for that is, uh, it's kind of long, sorry, singularityyouaustraliasummit.com. And as promised, I'm going to send you a code to give to your listeners. You can put it up on your website, uh, and anyone can, can access that. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you all in February at the ICC. Awesome. When you look at the lineup, just as, just as a, as a punter, when you look at the lineup, it's super impressive. And you've already talked about some of the people and some of the things you'd be talking about. I mean, is it accessible for everybody really? I mean, can anybody just lob up and get something from it? Because I suspect a few people would be a little overawed by the topic and the speakers and what it's about. Is it something for anybody? Is it something for anybody? Oh, is it something for anybody on the street? Absolutely. Anybody on the street who is curious about the future and interested in the way things are progressing, it is absolutely accessible for them. So one of the biggest things about our event that I think is quite different to most conferences is that the whole way that it's structured is not just a collection of speakers. It actually follows a really coherent narrative across the three days so that everyone gets the same introduction. Everyone can follow the story throughout the, the, the two and a half days and everyone comes out feeling like they've moved along the same kind of pathway. Um, when we did this in New Zealand last year, we had hundreds of uh, educators. We had nonprofits there. We had startups there. We have special pricing for all them. We've got really special pricing for young people. So we had lots of people there who were under 25. Uh, we had, you know, some board directors of some of New Zealand's biggest corporates sitting next to like a, you know, a 12 year old who had taken three days off school to be there. Um, absolutely it is accessible and, and, and 
relevant and appropriate for anybody. I think it sounds fantastic. You're, um, you've just dropped some gold on the show. We really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for dropping some wisdom on us. And uh, it's just been terrific. Thank you. Oh, man, I've had such a great time. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate you having me on. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. That was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. For someone who uses technology every day, that was killer. It is killer, but I think, as I said, the head, the head, there it is again, uh, at the top <laughs> of the show, I just hope people don't go, yeah, it's fascinating, but it's not going to affect me and there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, yeah. we, we as business leaders and thinkers, I mean, the stuff, the cybersecurity thing, I think is absolutely critical for us to think about before we just give our details away and plug into stuff without knowing what we're plugging into. Mm. And the other thing is the impact, particularly when you think about industries, like just this week I was doing a speaking gig for a financial planning company, or you think about law firms, anybody who's got big data, combine, as we said in the interview, big data with AI and basically you're starting to get redundancies. Now, as Jocko would say, good opportunity to get better, opportunity to learn something new. So if you find yourself in something which can be outsourced to a computer, what we need to do is say, good, what am I going to do about it and start to act upon something now? So I, 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 it's a powerful, powerful show. And I think all parents need to be thinking about it as well for being able to suggest and guide and, and just open up our children's minds to the possibilities of what's going to happen in the future. Project forward five years' time, let me tell you, self-driving, self-navigating cars, intuitive household products, smart homes, electric, I mean, you name it, it's going to be all over us. Mm. The thing that it was interesting to me in there as well is that I work in an industry that is actually dying because it's actually being swapped, the work's being done by the video editors. So, Whereas you used to have an audio and a video editor, these days the video editor is really starting to do both. So it's not just bit what's been taken over by technology, it's also translating to where your industry's heading in general, right? Well, it is. And just, we've got to sit down and look at each of our industries because now as a keynote speaker, um, I know the future is in holograms. And I know that there'll be speakers who rather than pay the big money and have them fly from America to Australia, they'll just stand in their back shed in a pair of board shorts with just a shirt and a jacket on like they do in the newsroom and they'll be presented on stage in real life as a hologram, which is what Tony Robbins is already doing if you've got the cash. Wow. Wow. But given, given five years' time, it won't be that expensive yeah. and you'll have the best keynote speakers in the world who are in their own living room standing in a pair of shorts Mm. And all you can see is from their waist up and they'll be delivering keynotes to you in a room on a stage as if they were right there. You think about it. I mean, even my industry. And that's what I'm puzzled with now is what 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 can I do? Which is why I'm going in and spending time at Microsoft to look at HoloLens, mm. which is a combination of AR and holograms to say, well, I can't afford it right now, but I'm super curious. And that's why I think people like Kyla... Singularity University, all the wonderful work that's going on. I mean, Peter Diamandis, who started Singularity University, check that guy out. I mean, his thinking is just out of this world. We've got to get onto these guys and just look at what's what's coming up, pondering it, and say, how do we start to prepare ourselves for it? The Mojo Radio Show. Time to get out of the show. Before we do, quick shout out, Northern Barbarian, under 12 C's. 
Two games they lost this season to Ride, both games by two points, just a conversion unit. They played the grand final last Sunday against Ride. Their pact between themselves before the game was that they were going to stop this massive front row that Ride had, which caused all the damage <laughs> in the first two games. Job done. Not only did they win, final score, 29-12. Congratulations, fellas. Well done, boys. Cheers. <laughs> Too early? Nah, it's Ten. what, 9.30? No, that's all right. 9.30? It's got to be 5 o'clock somewhere. That's Jimmy right. Buffett. Exactly. Hey, Jimmy Buffett, it's got to be 5 o'clock somewhere. Hey, I'm, I'm working for Cape Town this week. It's 2 o'clock in the morning there, so let's, let's there drink we up. Go. Let's hook into it. Well done, boys. All right, let's take us out. Now, we're going to, for the... Uh, our audience who are, I suspect, Kiwis and or Aussies, this is what we term in the game as a flashback. This is My Sex, a band <laughs> from, I think, the 80s, correct me if I'm a wrong. great Aussie pub band, My great Sex. Great Aussie pub band. This is one of the great iconic songs. It's, it's a little corny, but it ties back to the conversation we've had today about technology, where it's going into the future, machine learning, AI, VR, and it all started back in the 80s with my sex. Can I just say it's certainly not where music's going. (laughs) This is my sex computer games. We're out.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.